Good morning. We're looking for men within our congregation who are qualified to serve as elders in this congregation. We're doing this for a number of reasons. Uh, three of them I'll give you. We honor God's design for the church, number one. That design includes a group of qualified spiritual leaders in each congregation. The second, we're doing it because we trust God's wisdom. Through His wisdom, He has taught us that not every man is qualified to watch over His people. There are congregations of the church who have chosen to remain without elders and electing to have things like a men's business meeting where every man gets an equal say and the majority rules. If you've experienced that, you should know already that such an arrangement does not work out well in the end if it is maintained. But third, we were looking for elders because we recognize our need. We realize that we need guidance. We need oversight from those who have gained wisdom from God and who have learned to apply it correctly. So we're looking for elders. God has given us a detailed description of the type of men who He wants to lead His congregation. He has described the character of a faithful steward, one who will deal with His church honorably and righteously. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-3, through 3, or we studied that last week, I should say, we noted the type of character described by God. It's important that we allow God to teach us which men He trusts to take care of His flock. This morning we're going to continue on further in that same passage. So be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll pick up this morning in our studies in verse 4. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 4. But before we continue on looking at these character qualities. I want to say just just a few words. There are congregations of the church who have wounded themselves, hamstrung themselves by making these character qualities that we are studying more difficult to obtain than God Himself did. It's my goal to be honest with the Scriptures, to teach them clearly, reasonably, and to teach exactly and only what they say. That may mean that some of our traditional understandings need to be rethought and reconsidered. Every Bible study that I go into every time I open the book I'm willing to leave every practice, every belief, every teaching behind if the Scriptures teach me that I ought to. I would encourage you to enter Bible study the same way. Willing to abandon everything that you stand for, everything that you think is right, everything that you've ever taught or ever believed if the Scriptures themselves will teach you that you ought. 
feels risky, doesn't it? Some complain that Bible study isn't exciting. It's, not, it's exciting when you enter it that way, isn't it? You come in willing to change everything about your life. What will I find today that may need to be changed by God for the greater good? Now my goal is not to bring change for the sake of change. Some people do that. They just want to mix things up for the sake of mixing it up. Not me. The Scriptures teach us that things ought to be orderly and organized and that we ought to do things the way that they say. And so that's all I want to do. But sometimes the Scriptures teach us that we ought to change. And when they do, we need to listen. So as we begin studying this morning, my request is that you listen to what the Scriptures teach. Allow them to speak. And if correction of understanding is needed, allow the Scriptures to make it so that you will walk in the teachings of Christ alone. With that mindset, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. He says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Let's pause there. One who is going to be appointed as an elder. That's who we're looking at in these passages is men who are desiring to be elders and now we're looking at the quality of character that's required. One who's going to be appointed as an elder should be a married man with children. That's something that's seen very plainly. But understand the point of this teaching. The way a man treats his household is the way he will treat the church. If he has failed to manage his own household well, he will fail in his management of God's household. That's the point. That's the reasoning that's being applied. He's reasoning from the lesser to the greater that if you are faithful with a little, Faithful in your own household, then you will be faithful with much. And so we look at a man's household, and is he managing his household well? His household includes everyone under his care and supervision as the leader of his home. His wife and his children are under his management as the leader of the household. Once a man's children leave his home to live on their own, they are no longer under his care and supervision. And even if they leave the church after leaving his home, they would not disqualify the man because of their choices. I want to give you something to chew on. There's an example that's often given. Someone will say, well, you say that, but wouldn't it concern you a great deal? If there was a, a child who grew up in the church, and upon reaching the years, uh, you know, 18 years of age, decided they would leave home, and upon leaving home, they went crazy, began living a life full of sin and in the world of the world like that prodigal son? Wouldn't that concern you about the man who was 
being looked at to be an elder, I want you to consider what's just been described. What's just been described is a child who grew up understanding and maintaining the rules of the household set down by his father. And until the moment he left his house, he was under his father's control. He understood the house rules, understood what was allowed and what was not. And only upon exiting that house and being removed from his father's control and management did he decide that he would go and live a different sort of life. Now you tell me, what does that tell you about the man's character? How well did he manage his household when he's dealing with a child who is that rebellious that the moment he leaves the house, he's going to go out and perform all sorts of sinful things. But while he was in the home, he knew better. He knew that wasn't allowed, period. And so he didn't do it. If that situation arises, that man has understood and has been able to maintain control of his household. He's managed it well. We need to be sure that we allow the Scriptures to speak here. If I do something stupid, no one goes back to my mom and dad and says, didn't you raise him better? Isn't he under your control? You understand? I'm out here in California. They're over in Oklahoma, a thousand miles away. If I go out and I, let's say I crash my car into an elementary school. No one is going to return to my parents and say, why isn't he under your control? Why aren't you keeping control of him better? You understand it's impossible to have control over your children after they've become adults and are out living their own life, making their own choices. What is important here is when the children were in his home, under his care, under his supervision, how did he treat them? Did he maintain control of his home? Did he manage them well? Did he keep them under control with all dignity? Because as a general rule, the way the man treats his household is the way he will treat the church. The way he manages his household matters. A man may manage his household in a number of ways. And not all of them are fitting of an elder in the church. For instance, a man may have perfectly obedient children who are quiet who understand right and wrong and are, are just the best children you've ever seen, never seen them act up or kick anybody in the shins. But every day when he goes home, he achieves that measure of control by flogging his children until their backs are bruised, until they can barely walk. Has he maintained control of them with all dignity? Certainly not. You see, the way he achieves the control is of the utmost importance. 
instruction, encouragement, discipline, comfort, joy. All of these should be part of His raising of His children. You should see the relationship between God and the church as you look at this man's household. You can expect the same approach to the church that he has taken with his household. And so it is important that we examine how he maintains his household, how he manages it, and whether or not he does it well. At this time, there are some things that I have to address. And I say I have to because I, I have to. I, don't, I, I wish I didn't even have to bring up this section of the lesson, but I have to. Because there are some traditional understandings of this passage. Most of the time, when 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 is read, the emphasis is placed on one question. And that is, does he have at least two children? Does he have at least two children? There have been many good, upstanding members of the church, well-versed in the Scriptures, who've looked at this passage, and upon seeing the word children, they determined that a man with one child only is unqualified to serve as an elder in the Lord's church. There are some that I look up to even today who claim and believe that. But I do not believe that that understanding honors the meaning and intent of the passage. <coughs> Consider this. What if I called a meeting for Vacation Bible School? Vacation Bible School is coming up, by the way, uh, sometime in the beginning of August. So be prepared for that and, and get ready for it. But let's say that I said, uh, come to the front of the room if you have children. Come to the front of the room if you have children. I would expect parents with one child as well as parents with two or five or twenty to come to the front of the room. My question is, what if Paul uses this word in exactly that same way? What if when he talks about children, he's speaking generically, not specifically? Now, I wouldn't expect anybody to change their mind because I have a good think-so or, or because I've given you an example from today's world. There are things very different today from what they were a hundred years ago, much less a thousand years. And so that wouldn't really convince me if I was sitting in your shoes listening to someone uh, up here like me. But what if the Scriptures themselves show us that Paul did indeed use the word that way. That would be something. That would be something. And I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 5. Uh, probably just one page over in your Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to look at a couple verses together. 1 Timothy 5 verses 3 and 4. He says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents 
for this is acceptable in the sight of God. His point there, of course, is that children and grandchildren ought to take care of their parents when they're in need. That's something that, uh, you know, we parents and children, you need to talk about that. Especially parents, because you need to make sure that they're going to take care of you. Uh, but children, too, it's important to give you comfort to your folks and let them know you're going to take care of them as well. Question is, is an only child relieved of this responsibility? Isn't that absurd to think that because it's an only child that they would not need to take care of their parents when they're old? That's absurd. Certainly not. When he writes children or grandchildren there, he's not specifying that that two or more children or two or more grandchildren only have the responsibility to take care of their widowed mother or grandmother, but rather that the descendants, the ones who have come after in the line, have a responsibility to take care of the former. Even an only child should make a return to their parents because that's acceptable in the sight of God. Now, look down again. Verse 9. 1 Timothy 5, verse 9. Here he's giving some descriptive qualities, a list of things that should be true in this widow if she is to be put on the list that he's talking about. He says a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, and he continues on there, but notice, if she has brought up children, so what if she has just one child? Does that disqualify her from being put on the list? Well, certainly not. In the same way that an only child is not disqualified from making a return to their parents, a widow who only raised one child is not disqualified from being put on the list, and a man with only one child in his household is not disqualified from being an elder. As long as he keeps them under control with all dignity. You see, there's a point and purpose to verses 4 and 5 of 1 Timothy 3. And having two or more children is not it. It's imperative that he have children, descendants. But the number of them is not what's under concern here. What is, what is the concern is does he manage his household well in a way that's pleasing in the sight of God? And does he keep his children under control with all dignity? You see how that leads back to the character of the man. That is important. Now we have something else to discuss too. Titus chapter 1. Turn over there with me. Titus chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 5 and 6, then talk about some more things. Titus 1 verse 5. Paul writes to Titus, and and he says, For this reason I left you in Crete. 
I remind you of that because Crete is an island. It's like a little triangle sitting out in the midst of an ocean. And so he's, he's sitting out there in Crete. He says, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, and he continues on giving very much the same list as we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's why it sounds so familiar. But there is one thing that seems a bit unfamiliar, and that's the end of verse 6, where he says, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. There have been, again, many good upstanding members of the church, well-versed in the Scriptures, who have looked at this passage and have taught that children who believe are in fact children who have been baptized into Christ. And thus the requirement has been put forth that one who will serve as an elder must have children who are Christians. I'll tell you what made me question that. We should be willing to question just about everything. What made me question it, in this case, is the fact that this would be a requirement in addition to what we find in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. On the surface, that may sound like small potatoes, but it's not. Nowhere in 1 Timothy is an elder required to have children who have been baptized into Christ. Let me remind you of the situation. Timothy is in the city of Ephesus on the mainland. Titus is on the island of Crete. It's one of those hypothetical situations that people would offer that you would think could never happen. One guy is out here on the mainland in a city by himself, and another guy's out here marooned on an island by himself. Each one has received a letter, each letter written very much at the same time by the same man. And it doesn't make sense that Paul would have given Timothy incomplete instructions concerning elders and who is qualified to serve. If Timothy and Titus met together, furthermore, they must understand the same requirements on elders. Both must be completely able to appoint elders based on the letter each received. And this is where we're going to get into what most people just really hate, and that's a little bit of vocabulary. So bear with me, and let's think together, because this is important. I looked further into what is meant by children who believe. I found something. The word for believe is the word pista. And it's translated believe in many translations, translated faithful in King James and New King James versions. The words used in one of two ways in the scriptures. One, the first, is to refer to a believer. That is, one who has baptized, been baptized into Christ. 
2 Corinthians 6 verse 15 is an example of that. Where he says, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? That is, what has one who is baptized into Christ in common with one who is not? So that's one way it's used. The other is to refer to one who is trustworthy, dependable, or obedient. And that's found in Matthew 24. I'd encourage you to look at that. Matthew 24, verse 45. Jesus is talking to them and He says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Faithful is the word pista. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And so you've got these two ways that it's generally used. And the context determines which is meant. And if we compare the descriptions given in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, and Titus chapter 1, verse 6, considering that they must be able to appoint elders in each place and have a complete set of instructions. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, he's to keep his children under control with all dignity. In Titus chapter 1, verse 6, he's to have faithful, that is, trustworthy, dependable, or obedient children who are not accused of rebellious or riotous behavior. Do you see how those children in his house, if they're accused of riotous and rebellious behavior, puts a stain on the character of the man? He is not able at that point to maintain control of his household and his children with dignity. And so he is at that point not qualified to serve. One of two statements must be true. And we need to come to grips with this. If we believe that Titus did indeed receive an additional requirement, then the first statement is what you must cling to and that is that Titus received additional requirements on elders and Timothy received an incomplete description of elders and was therefore unable to appoint qualified men until he received a copy of the letter to Titus. Or, both Timothy and Titus received the complete description of elders and both were able to appoint elders in their respective congregations as they ought to. You've got to have one or other of those statements. And there's only one of those statements. Uh, only the second one reflects God's wisdom, serves the purpose of each letter. Timothy and Titus must have received the same complete description of elders and both must have been able to appoint elders in their respective congregations based on the content of each individual letter. And so let's not ignore the context of the word we're dealing with so that we can cling to a tradition that is 
plainly and simply unbiblical to demand that a man's children in his household are Christians. And some even further than that say if he leaves his house and departs the church, he's not qualified. Already dealt with that. You can rewind the tape if you want. We don't need to go through it again. Let me remind you of the point of this quality. The point of this even being listed is not to name two children. It's not to, uh, to look at whether his children have been baptized into Christ, but rather to look at the way a man treats his household and realize that that is the way he will treat the church. And if he has failed to manage his own household well, he will fail to treat and manage God's household well. If his children are rebellious and riotous while in his home, and they are out of his control, then he is not qualified to serve as an elder of the church. And just think of the consequences if he were allowed. If we reason from the lesser to the greater, just like Paul does, if what is allowed in his household is what will be allowed in the church, that means that all the members of the church will be allowed to be riotous and rebellious toward God, toward the leadership, toward everything that goes on. It would be an out-of-control congregation, one that does not complete the goals set out for it by God. And that is not an elder. That is not a man who is qualified to serve in that capacity. It is the will of God that elders manage the church well and that they maintain control of the congregation with dignity just as they did their own household and their own children. Having said that, we're going to move into 1 Timothy 3 verse 6. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. He says, and not a new convert. That is, the one you appoint as an elder should not be a new convert, so that he will not become deceited, or conceited rather, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Appointing a man to a position of authority when he is brand new to the church will tempt him to become conceited. He is in danger of thinking too much of himself. And as a result, he will behave foolishly and he will be spiritually blinded, thus becoming a blind guide who will eventually fall into a pit. Luke 6, 39. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7 says, He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is something I think that is often overlooked. The way he is perceived by the world is just as important as the way he is perceived within the church. We are, after all, reaching out to the lost souls of this world, and if they find this man to be unchristlike, then he is not qualified to serve as an elder. A man who has a bad reputation outside the church may cause every outreach effort to be ineffective because visitors and new converts who meet him would respond, He leads this congregation? Really? 
that guy who I saw do this and that and who treated me this way and that way, he's the one who offers spiritual guidance to this congregation? Well, I want nothing of it. Do you see how damaging that can be? Before a man is installed as an elder, two or three trustworthy men, and this is a personal, this is not Bible, this is what my suggestion is, and it's what I've seen in the past. And so please be aware of that. That two or three spiritually trustworthy men ought to ask the place he works what they think of him. Gauge his reputation. They ought to go to his neighborhood and ask his neighbors what they see in him. They ought to go to the places he frequents where people outside the church know him and see if he is living Christianity or if he is just putting it on very well around Christians. One negative response may be a coincidence, but if his reputation is generally unchristlike, then he fails to meet this quality. It's important to think about that as well. Over the past three weeks, we've studied together about the work of elders, the character qualities needed to complete that work in a way pleasing to God. I'm going to give you a brief rundown of the things that will happen from this point onward. I think it's important that the congregation that you know what this process is going to look like and what to expect. The first part of the process of appointing elders is teaching. To give instruction about elders and who they are and what they do. The next part is for the congregation, that's all of us, to suggest men in whom these qualities exist. You should speak to those men you want to suggest and encourage them to serve. The elders will then examine the suggested man, making sure that the character qualities of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 are present. And then, following that, an announcement of the men who have been put forward will be made. That will be followed by a time for scriptural objection to any man who has been put forward to serve. After a period of time, the minister, in accordance with the scriptures, will appoint the additional elders to watch over and guide this congregation alongside our current elders. And then we will continue on. We will continue to work together. We will have more guidance than we've had in the past. And the congregation will benefit. And our efforts as a congregation will benefit. Because God's plan is wise and the men that God has seen fit to select will also be wise. At that point, I would encourage every member to remember what's said in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, 
Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. With new elders being appointed, there will be mistakes that are made. There will be any number of things that come with that. We need to be understanding. We need to be considerate, not just of our current elders, but of those who will be appointed additionally to them. Those men are accepting a, an excellent work, but it is also a difficult work. And we need to be compassionate and kind toward them as they, for lack of a better way of putting it, get used to it. That's why we're not just appointing new elders and getting rid of the old ones. There's going to be a process there where the new elders will continue to learn and grow as elders. And they will become wiser and wiser. It's an important step for our congregation. This is part of continuing to follow God's design for the church. And I'm thankful to the men in this congregation who will step forward to help guide us in the ways of the Lord. If any of the things that we've said today or in the past couple weeks need clarification for you, you can call me on the phone, you can reach me wherever I am if you can find me. Or I'll be standing around in here for a while after services. If you want to talk about anything that I said, please talk to me. The elders as well can offer clarity on any of the things that we've talked about as we have come to an understanding about these things as well. Please don't hesitate to ask or question. It's good to be sure of what you believe. This morning we've come to the end of our time and really quite a bit past the end. And I appreciate you offering that to me. We're going to offer an invitation at this time. We're going to invite anyone with a spiritual need to make that known. If you are a child of God and you have strayed from the path that He set for you, we want to help you come back. And so if you need to repent this morning, if you need to return to your walk with God, as His child, make that known. And if you are not a Christian, but you have learned about the Gospel, and you believe its teachings, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who came to earth, lived perfectly, and became the perfect and only sacrifice that there ever is or ever will be for sins, and you are ready to repent of your sins, and commit your life to obedience to Him, then we will hear your confession of that and we will baptize you in His name for your forgiveness through His blood. If anyone has a spiritual need this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing.